Tantric Conversation, episode number one, Matt Connor. Matt Connor is the front man for RPG and a uh, guy that's been around the Richmond area for a long time. I've we've had a lot of mutual friends. I've always liked his band, but never really known really what he's about or where he's from. Had a lot of assumptions. For instance, I thought he was from Roanoke, and he's not, as I found out in this interview. Um, he likes a lot of real esoteric and obscure rock and roll, and he uh, he likes the likes the punk rock, and all of that stuff feeds into what he does now. He's got uh, a lot of history in bands in the Richmond area that I didn't know about, because as far as I was concerned, he started to exist when I started to notice him in around 1998. And through to the early 2000s with um, both the Pushers and RPG. Um, just recently, I went to see him at Balasso. It was a great show. And I asked him if he'd like to do this podcast just because I want to make friends. Because I like the dude. And he's a cool dude. I think you'll agree. So, where are we at here, man? What is this? You, uh, how long have you been living here? Uh, I've lived here since... Mm, March, I think March or April of last year. Yeah, I moved here. Yeah. So Let me tell you, don't talk about anything that you don't want me to put on the internet. Because, okay. Because uh, I'm not. I don't feel like editing. Sure, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Right. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't have a whole lot to hide. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't see any records, man. Where are the records? Uh, the records are at the practice space. I don't oh, yeah. have enough room here for the records, and I don't want to torment my downstairs neighbor with these super thin floors, and yeah. s- which makes her have a super thin ceiling of, right. you know, blasting the oblivions so at you can, 3.30 in the morning. You can do that at the practice space, so you can hang out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. There's a, a record player set up there, uh, and we spin records there all the time. More than likely, what will probably happen is I will end up moving my records and my sound system to my girlfriend's house yeah. in the near future and that's probably where it'll stay because at the space i don't get to use it but once a week when i'm down there so mm-hmm. she's got a lot of records herself doesn't she uh-huh pretty they're all in the attic fan. though i mean it's so like you know man Life starts happening, and the last thing you think about is, man, I need to set up my turntable. <laughs> because I'll, usually I'm like, man, I need to knock it, my power shut off. Yeah, yeah. Know? Well, yeah, and the turntable is, I mean, it's, it's a luxury, man. In some, in some respects, it's a, um, it's a sign that you're, you know, you're settled. Sure. If you can yeah, take the time I mean, to fuck and with I, Yeah, <laughs> and I literally, like, lost... You know, when uh, my wife and I split up, I had a computer full of music, and now all of that shit is gone. Yeah. I mean, I listen to music on my phone. I have, here's what I have on my phone. Here's what I have on my iTunes. Let's see what it is. Uh, my pa- if you ever find my phone, my passcode is 6288. <laughs> you can look at all naked pictures of stuff. And yeah. I, I can just hack into it without that, man. <laughs> right. I got skills. Uh, I do not have skills in that regard. Uh, let me find it here. Where is it? Where's my iTunes? Oh, here we go. This is Let's fascinating see. for the people. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Dead Air is awesome. Yeah. Here we go. Uh, on my telephone, I have Aladdin Sane, The Man Who Sold the World, uh, that new Graveyard record that just came out a little while ago, Lights Singin'. Out. Oh, no, that's Lights Out. Singing Blues was the one before that, right? Yeah, Heisingen yeah, Blues, yeah. That's, yeah Heisingen. Mm-hmm. Heisingen. Mm-hmm. That's good shit. Uh, and Parachute by the Pretty Things. And a couple uh, a, so- a couple solo songs of mine and a set, an acoustic set that I did at Snake Oil Recording. Would we call that your like Desert Island collection then, I guess? That's no, it's not. Records. It's totally not. No, it's just what I happen to have on my phone. <laughs> that, uh, I don't even know. My Desert Island collection would be... I don't know, man. It changes a lot. Can uh, we do five selections? I can do five I like a lot right now. Teenage Head, uh, Flaming Groovies would definitely be one. Um, probably Kill City would be one. Uh, what else? Um, yeah, overthink it. Just let it, let it flow. Uh, Pop it out. <laughs> probably Fandango or ZZ Top's oh, first yeah, album. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what else have I liked a lot lately? Um, 
Man, it's hard to say. I like Parachute. Like, Three yeah. Things Parachute is probably one of my all-time favorites. I don't think I've ever heard that record. And they're... Oh, man, it's totally like they recorded it at Abbey Road. The thing I love about the Pretty Things is they evolved into stuff that was so... I mean, you know, they started out as like one of those R&B screamer, mm-hmm. you know, kind of rowdy uh-huh. dudes, you know, and then... They're British. Yeah, yeah, they were British like British rhythm and blues. Yeah, uh-huh. they were like cronies, uh, like art school dudes with Keith Richards and mm-hmm. all those cats. Yeah, know? and they kind of did their own thing and were like, you know, like that R and B screamer, garage rock kind of rough dudes. Mm-hmm. Hence why they called themselves the Pretty Things, right. like, you know, because they weren't. No, uh, didn't dress up when they played their shows. Played like in their street clothes, which back then for like mod bands and R and B bands and stuff like that was right. really like kind of punk. You know? Yeah, like, yeah. No, I guess punk because nobody did that. You right. Know? And people were like, oh, you guys just play in your street clothes. You need like a. You're not even making an effort. Yeah, you're not there. wearing that Piccadilly Circus <laughs> shit and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, the yeah, and then they evolved into, you know, Parachute and Savage Eye and stuff like that. And Parachute, man, is like, they recorded it at Abbey Road, and it's really like, you know, they recorded SF Sorrow, too, before that, which mm-hmm. is the record that pretty much Pete Townsend bit to make Tommy. It was, oh, yeah? Yeah. I'm so it's th- is it musically like that, or... or? Uh, not so much, no. It's like premise-wise. Not yeah. premise-wise in the way that it's like... Uh, you know, as rock opera as there was there's a story at the time. There's yeah, about this dude uh-huh. named SF Sorrow. Okay. Yeah. Who well, you know, it's his life. The beginning of the record's him being born, you know. Well, it's even like goes it starts with, you know, what his parents do and then him being born and then him growing up and falling in love and you know, all the stuff that happens to him. It's awesome. It is awesome. And then they went on to put out you know, records like Parachute and Savage Eye, which are totally different and totally sound like they just went to Abbey Road and were like, well, if the Beatles aren't going to make another Beatles record, we'll make one. Yeah. So they're, they're doing a lot of studio stuff that can not be reproduced yeah, yeah. live. Well, yeah, yeah, essentially. But there are, you can see on YouTube live clips from show, live stuff that they did for Parachute that is awesome. It's mm-hmm. not obviously as produces it's going to sound in the studio but the live stuff is ripping the dude that plays guitar is ripping man and he's like 19 years old oh another one of my top records is free tons of subs by the like all-time favorite record that is a record that is like a bunch free of free as in like all right now yeah, like yeah. later that was later stuff for them yeah, right? yeah. Uh, tons of sobs is their first record that they did for island in 69 68 or 69 but they were teenagers mm-hmm. uh like I feel like Andy Fraser was like 15 or 16 or something when that record came out. I could be wrong. Don't hold me to that. But they, they were all like young dudes playing music that sounds like it's being played by not just like seasoned vets, but like dudes who have experienced some things in yeah. their life. You know what I mean? Gnarly, ruthless blues, you know, Paul Kossoff playing his ass off. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, I had that crazy vibrato thing, you know, he was doing that, like honing that back then. And Paul Rogers is like really raw. Like the whole thing is really raw. It sounds like they recorded it really fast. Super awesome. What year did that come out? I think 68 or 68. So now I'm remembering you talking about this, that the first time I met you, you were playing in a band called the Pushers, right? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, a continuation, an evolution of this band that the singer was in called the M80s. Okay. Uh, that was a pretty, you know, well-known 80s garage revival band, you know. So for you, were you like, were you into this kind of stuff, like the garage? I was. Like when I was in high school and stuff, I gravitated towards 60s psychedelic rock. It made more sense to me than just about anything until I was in probably... Like the summer between uh, sixth and seventh grade, I learned it, which was I was born in 1972. Mm-hmm. Uh, so do the math. The, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's the song too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but uh, like in the summer between like <clears throat> sixth and seventh grade, I learned about punk rock from a cousin of mine who was in college and some older dudes that I knew, and I that was it. You know what I mean? And I kind of started the more i listened to both of those kinds of music the more i really started to appreciate the correlations between the two yeah you know? well how did you i mean like you know to find out about some of this stuff like pretty things that's you know 
I mean, they're not like way off the beaten path, but like, I mean, you know, I came up like in late sixties psychedelic shit, but all I knew about was the really mainstream. I didn't find out right. about that, you know, crypt records stuff or even, even a, a, you know, a few tiers above that until I was like in New York and whatever. Like, how did you get access? Uh, well, Where are you from originally? Anyway? I'm from a little town called Connellsville, Pennsylvania, which is in the mm-hmm. southwest corner of Pennsylvania in between. Uh, it's pretty much like equidistant to Morgantown, West Virginia, West Virginia, and to Pittsburgh. So I would, I was fortunate enough when I was growing up that I could go to Morgantown, which is where West Virginia University is, and there was a club there called the Underground Railroad that later turned into the Nyabingi Dance Hall, and I saw first show I ever punk show I ever saw was there. Uh, it was. The Inbred and the Butthole Surfers in probably 1984 or 5. Uh, wow. And I saw, I mean, I used to go to the Electric Banana in Pittsburgh and see punk shows in the 80s. Uh, there was a really cool club called The Decade in Pittsburgh. That, so I was lucky in that regard. But, I mean, I was a hillbilly, man. Like, I grew up, like, in a tiny little town of about 10,000 people at the base of the Allegheny Mountains. And I lived in the country, away from the town. But that was the closest town to me, you know. So yeah. who, was the, uh, who was the Merlin that, like... Oh, uh, uh, there were a yeah. couple different ones. My co- uh, I had an older cousin who went to college in Indiana, Pennsylvania, the Indiana University of Pennsylvania. And he... Turn me on to like the replacements and, uh, you know, the first like old REM records mm-hmm. and, you know, that kind of college rock stuff that was happening back then. And then I had a friend that I skated with who had an older brother and his older brother had a bunch of older friends that were into like the exploited and the dead Kennedys and all that weird, like what we used to call back then Xerox punk. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, not to say that it was all the same. It was just everything was done as cheaply as possible. I remember going into this kid's bedroom and he he had like, you know, the old eighties flyers. So the flyers were made on Xerox machines. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Right. And the tape cases <laughs> and the stickers and everything. Yeah. Uh, everything was black and white and crude and meant to be crude. Mm-hmm. It was. Uh, I remember going in to his room uh, and he had uh, the poster that says. Uh, Army, be all you can be, dead. <laughs> and he had the other one that said, uh, you know, the join the army, go to exotic lands and meet interesting people and kill them. Yeah, you know, yeah, I was like, classic, oh, and like right. the total like, hey, kid, I know you're 13, but my big brother's here to tell you that the government blows. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like the feeders, like feeders, when I heard that, like that and the dead Kennedys were two things that I heard that I was like, wow, man, these guys aren't just some dumb chumps like a lot of the punk rockers that i know that just sit around and drink meister brown and get hammered these right. dudes are like angry about some stuff mm-hmm. and they're trying to tell me something yeah so i should check it out and you know i started playing guitar around that time but playing guitar around that time wasn't like that it was like the first band i was ever in we played 15 iron maiden songs we played creeping death we played Sanitarium. Yeah. How were um, those versions of those songs? Uh, they actually passable? weren't bad, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they were passable because I was I was the youngest dude in the band. I was in ninth grade at the time. Uh, and this dude that lived up the road from me was a total guitar shredder. And he was a senior. And all his buddies were like the dudes who were in the music program who were the best dudes at what they did in the music program. So we had like the shit-hot drummer that was like the Neil Peart disciple Mm -hmm. we had the bass player that was like the steve harris dude and we had the singer from choir who was like the super falsetto dude Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. for a bunch of kids in high school you know it wasn't too bad yeah Uh, but i at that time was like you guys we should play like they were like let's play limelight and i was like man no (laughs) we should play like like who are you by void and they were like what is that and i was like listen man listen to this and they were like this is terrible and i was like no it's really not and like uh animosity and technocracy were out and i was like listen to this man i mean this like blows heavy metal out of the fucking Mm -hmm. water Mm -hmm. don't you think and they were like no i can't understand what the dude's saying it's too fast it's all sloppy i was like yeah but that's kind of what's awesome about it don't you think and they were like right then was when i was like oh you guys are going to go do this and I'm going to go do this 
but before I go do this, I'm going to have sex with the drummer's girlfriend. <laughs> 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 well, so you had an instinct somehow, like, I mean, I, I had that same reaction, I guess, to like, you know, I was into metal, you know, in, in the 80s and all of that. And when I first started hearing punk, it just sounded bad to me. I didn't come to appreciate it till later when I was playing. Sure. And I, I was like, oh, well, here's the great thing about this is that I don't have to sit down with a metronome and like get yeah. good. I can just go out here and do it. Yeah, and bang on it. Yeah. And then I, you know, then I started, um, you know, reading about it and stuff like that. And I came at punk rock from very like you know intellectual art school angle right. you know like i wasn't down with it you know to begin with and so i i, I you know automatically have this conversation going in my head about like yeah it's the it's the very true primal raw thing you right. know, they're not overthinking it they're not overworking it but then you know like you pointed out there were a lot of punk bands that were you know they weren't xerox in the term that you meant like with the flyers but they were just copying the fashion at yeah. the time and they didn't have anything to add to that no. conversation they were just fucking you know, piercing things and tearing sure, clothes and like sure. getting I fucked mean, up. And you know, um, that whole thing, you could really, if you want to, go back to that Malcolm McLaren London punks, which right. is, that's all that dude was doing, was trying to manufacture an image. Right, and he stole it from Richard Hell and right. those guys at yeah. CBGBs. Sure. And so originally that group of people who I think of is like, you know, the beginning of, yeah. and they're really bringing back the shit you were talking about before. Mm -hmm. Like they're trying to get back to the basics of rock and roll. Sure. Well, some of them were anyway, like the Ramones and yeah. whatever, Dead Boys. But then there were people like the Talking Heads and Blondie. Sure. They were, and, and like television, television right? those dudes could play. Right. You know, like East Bay Ray can play the fucking guitar. Right. Man. Tom Verlaine and Richard Lloyd can play. Like... But the choice, and that's, that's the thing, man. That's the thing about, to me, about music. What makes it what it is are choices. It's all choices. Right. You know, it's what you, if you want to be a dude who is a really good guitar player, but can't write a song to save your life because you can't make choices, you're no fucking good to me, man. Yeah. You know. And that's the thing about punk is it's balls and like sure. and it's not necessarily balls of aggression. It's like no. I'm gonna put my vulnerable shit out there. I'm yes. gonna fucking take a chance. Yes, it's, I'm, gonna, yeah, it's I'm a, not gonna wait till it's yeah. perfect. I'm just gonna yeah. play my fucking song as is. It's a confrontation yeah. at times, right. you know, which it should be. You know, it should uh but that's why I listen to music. I listen to music for stuff like that. I know people that listen to music because they like a song with a good melody. I know mm -hmm. people that listen to music because they pay attention to the words and couldn't even maybe re-sing the melody to you. I know people that listen to songs because they want it to be fun. Uh, I listen to songs sometimes because I can really enjoy being brought down by some heavy <laughs> shit. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and you, I'm sure you appreciate all of that shit too, melodic yeah. stuff and whatever, but what, what is like a... Uh, fucking religion for you or like a, a you know a cause or like yeah. that, that deep running stuff is like that thing you you know it when you hear it yeah. but you couldn't really quantify it like the first time I heard the swans I was like oh my the first time I heard that song failure I was like man this dude wrote this song specifically for me and then I heard that song goddamn the sun and I was like man I I was sold after that you know? so you had you had already been playing but you were going the metal like uh, in, you know difficulty intricacy composition route and then you got turned on to this sort of thing and you moved away from that or was it sure yeah I, well you know i moved away from that and started a band with some of my skater friends uh and it was more it wasn't punk by any means it was way more psychedelic <coughs> like and when we say Donovan, psychedelic, are we like, talking... Like, not psychedelic like Nuggets. Psychedelic like Donovan. Mm -hmm. Like, you know... Dreamy? And yeah, mellow, kind of super mellow, not aggressive really at all. Just because it was the nature of the dudes I was playing music with. Yeah, and you know, psych let's... I'd like you to define that actually for a minute because it, it gets thrown around a lot and like 13 floor elevators can be psychedelic sure. and um, you know, like you just mentioned, Donovan can be psychedelic. What is it that makes it psychedelic? Is it a fuzz pedal? Is it a, you know, uh, I, it can be, uh, you know, that drenched in reverb, like Chocolate Watch Band, like that song, uh, are you going to be there? Like that is kind of one of the definitive, like, psychedelic songs for me or you know there's some stuff uh that litter record emerge uh is really really like that is some like 
psychedelic in the fact that there's a lot of studio tricks going on. The subject matter these dudes are talking about is definitely like LSD related is, uh, you know, what's so to some degree psychedelic drugs are involved in that Uh, might've been the inspiration or might've been like that soundscape sounds good when you're doing some form of psychedelic. Uh, I could, yeah, I mean, I would imagine so. Uh, I would think that there were plenty of people taking lots of acid and making music. Some of it might have turned out well. I mean, you know, taking acid, sometimes things don't always go that well. But You might think they do and they don't. Right. Or they uh, <laughs> but it's just kind of that thing that it may, maybe psychedelic is like kind of like porn to a just you know a supreme court justice i don't know it to define it right, but you i know, know it when i hear it yeah. and, and the interesting you know bringing this to a circle here is like when the stooges started out they were called the psychedelic stooges right. and they dropped the psych- psychedelic part and they started off sounding like one of those nuggets kind of sure. garage bands. well because that dude and was then, all about the doors you yeah know, he was he was trying you know a lot of that stuff i've read and heard him talk about is he's like you know we were trying to play the blues man we just couldn't this right is just what right. we did this is what happened right you know? and when he saw jim morrison doing this freak out thing we right just and like of, how, the, yeah. you know that confrontational thing that's where all that confrontational wearing leather pants rolling around on the floor like a weirdo screaming Mm -hmm. and being cathartic i guess you know without all the pretense of the poetry that sure and the shamanism and all that stuff that jim morrison was doing i think you know but we don't give them enough credit for the amount of pretense that was involved in what they were doing (laughs) because they i mean they were plenty pretentious i mean they and they had like somebody the velvet underground like was it somebody from there involved in the first record didn't they? And uh, yeah, I think there was definitely some Lou Reed influence yeah, going on and, there. And I remember him saying that they wanted Funhouse to be like Sun Ra kind sure. of stuff. Like they wanted yeah. to just. But be, I, yeah, and that probably had a lot to do with like MC5 influence because those dudes were, you know, trying to ape that, that, and like you know some sort of embodiment of like white dudes from Detroit that somehow were cool enough to get to hang out with like Eldridge Cleaver and Sun Ra. Yeah, you know what I mean. They were uh, reaching for something, and I think sure. that like well, I think that was probably Sinclair mostly more than those dudes. You know, those dudes were probably just like, "Hey, man, we're a rock band, whatever." And I think John Sinclair was probably like, "No, man, you guys need to push this like weird, commie Black Panther, right? Super the White Panther Party." Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and that was something that I think I read that Iggy said that you know he wanted. To, you know, he wanted to stop trying to imitate like black dudes doing the blues and do the yeah. fucking Iggy version sure. of the blues. Jim and I mean, believe me, I, yeah, <laughs> believe me, some skinny little androgynous twenty-something dude from Ann Arbor hooked on dope probably has the blues. You yeah, know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's it's. I think Keith Richards said this a while ago. He was talking about like we think of this as being like a you know a black music or whatever, but it yet a dude from Sweden who has never had anything to do with any of that culture hears it and it resonates with it. Yeah. You know, it's something way more you know primal yeah. than that. That's the yeah. cork that like you know it pulled it out it of the is, jug yeah. or whatever. And like the like when you hear something that like Howlin' Wolf, like how could you not listen to Howlin' Wolf and be like, man, that is the most raw like brutal presentation of a tune like even if that dude isn't even trying to do that just the way he approaches it and the way he puts it out there man is uh, it's undeniable i mean as boy you're like oh my god man it sounds like this dude has been through hell and back so were you conscious of that as a musician even very early on like the the phony versus the real and i don't want to use fucking uh, words like authentic yeah probably and- uh because when i was a kid uh, the first three records I ever got when I was a kid, when I was like five years old for Christmas, I got Kiss Destroyer, First Zeppelin Record, and Paranoid. Uh, because of my older brother and my cousin. My older sister at the time was listening to like Billy Joel and Andy Gibb, and I hated that shit. <laughs> <coughs> I would like like cry when she put on Andy <laughs> Gibb because I hated it so much, and I would like like ask her... <coughs> through tears like why do you like this so much this is so terrible uh so maybe i've always been a snob or maybe i've always idealized and romanticized the shit out of music like you do when you're a kid because and i was just having this conversation the other day like you romanticize it's easy to romanticize things when you're a kid because you don't really know what goes into the process and you think well 
you know, you shouldn't write music for any other reason other than, you know, the most pure altruistic reasons, you selfless reasons you possibly could. And sometimes it just doesn't work that way. Uh, well, you, you know, I mean, I was not... Shit like Andy Gibb didn't bother me, you know. I hated that, it, I, I'm not going to purchase it, but, right. like, it didn't offend me or anything like right. that because I was yet to know the difference between yeah. the shit that was manufactured sure. for, you know, cynical reasons to sell records sure. and to sell fashion and sell all that stuff. I didn't know about that yet, so I don't really have a problem with it. Um... I, you know, and I guess I've always liked sucking up to girls, and girls like that shit. Sure. So, like, I just associated it with the girls. You know, it sure. wasn't what I was listening to. I wouldn't put that on in my room. Right. But you know, much later on, I start to really like. I get more alienated by, you know, the 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 people that are pulling the strings that are like, sure. you know, keeping even a, a white boy like me down. Like, it's <laughs> right. a fucking club of, yeah. you know, if you're not gonna if you're not gonna go along with us on this fake shit, then you don't get to yeah. be involved and. So, I mean, I wasn't really aware of that, like, how fake that stuff was or how cynical or how designed just to sell records or whatever it was until much later. Right. So you had an instinct about that. I, I didn't have an instinct about that. You just knew you didn't like it. I was it. just like, man, this sounds <laughs> terrible. Yeah. There is no, this is like flaccid, horrible garbage that you should not, no one should be listening to this. No, like it, to, to me still, to this day, man, there are, I have to really, like over the past few years, have really like started coming to terms with it, but it's really hard for me to take music that I think that is shitty, not as like a personal affront attack to me. Like, how dare you, mm -hmm. you motherfucker, pollute the world with this terrible Was that bullshit. you talking about Mumford & Sons the other day on... Oh, no, that was Eric Sugg saying that he had gladly managed not to hear them. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, speaking of, like, flaccid stuff, but, like, music like that, like, there was a time in my life when that shit would have, like, I would have been incensed. Yeah. You know, I would have been so angry and so uptight and so, you know, livid and wound up about, like, trying to understand, like, why someone would want to listen to that or be like, you know, you dumbasses listening to the radio there, you know, like when I was in junior high, I was like, man, there's better shit out there. Why are you following along with all this bullshit? Like, get out of this. Mm -hmm. There's better things that you could be doing. There's better music being made in places you've never even considered mm -hmm. that is so much better than what you're listening to now. And it was like some sort of crusade I was on, but people don't. It's not for every. I've come to realize it's not for everybody. Some people are totally content to be like, oh, whatever's on the radio, fuck it, man. I don't. Yeah, know. Yeah, it doesn't have to be yeah. a, a crusade, and that's one of the. That's the perspective of being at our age. Sure, you know, yeah. You can like yeah, you just dig what you dig, and not yeah. everybody has to dig it. But why it is one set of sounds is offensive and others yeah. is pleasant, and it isn't just the the purity thing because I've heard plenty of stuff that's pure. It sucks. I mean, like I would be equally sure. offended by it, but it's just something about that that person or what right. they're, they, they're putting across. It, it really can't be quantified. And like, sure. like guys have wasted a lot of time and ink, like yeah. trying to put it together. But I mean, it's like a can't like, who am I to judge somebody's kink? You yeah. Know what I mean, like if that's what you're into, that's what you're into, man. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not gonna try to change, you know, and the hilarious thing is, is that if I did when I was back then, when I was in junior high, if I would have gotten everybody to start listening to DRI, I would have hated DRI. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Because it was your thing. You yeah. Know? It was your, your, yeah. And that, that is, that's always the rub with that kind of stuff is when it, when it feels personal and like you, you discovered it and whatever, yeah. you get to form your own relationship out of the context of all of these other people or yes. whatever, the society. Which or is just culture. laying the ground for a horrible future of elitism. <laughs> <man>. <laughs> Jaded, cynical elitism. Yeah, and I, you know, I've gotten, I've learned to be comfortable with all of that, that stuff that's that's lame, you know, because yeah. you know, behind it are people who are like worth knowing to me. Sure. But like, whatever. That's we're getting off the track. I'm. So, how did you go from? First of all, how did you get here to Richmond? I moved here uh, in January of 1993 to go to VCU. Yeah, uh, and was there music involved in you going to VCU? Uh, no, I went to VCU. I was a mass communications major. So sort of, I was, my goal was to be on the radio. Uh, so 
In some sort of latent way, yeah, there was music involved. Uh, you mean you wanted to be like a disc jockey or yeah, I on-air really personality? For, yeah, yeah. I, on, on-air personality for NPR was my... Really? Yeah, that was my... How far towards that goal did you get? Uh, I actually have enough credits to graduate. I just never did because I got a job. Uh, I'm a guy who admittedly has some problems with bureaucracy mm-hmm. and jumping through hoops to like, like if you're going to make it this difficult for me to give you my money, I'm not giving you my money, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, So there was a lot of that. Like I said, I have enough credits to graduate. I just sort of elected to give it the Irish goodbye. And Mm -hmm. that's kind (laughs) of what happened. So you were playing music in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, Uh, I moved down here. Uh, The guys that I was in the band with in Pennsylvania in high school, we had often talked about, the drummer, uh, when we graduated, the first year he was in college, he went to WVU and he started dating this girl whose dad lived here. And he was like, man, we should go live in Richmond for the summer and play down there. Um, we all thought it was a great idea, but we never did it. And then I went to Penn State until 1993. I graduated in 1990. I went to Penn State in 1990, uh, until 1993 when I transferred to VCU and moved down here. Uh, didn't really, I was into school and just moved to a new town. It was kind of, I mean, I moved to a ta- from a town that was like a hillbilly town to this place, which is not a metropolis or megalopolis or anything like that, but it was still, you know, walking down Broad Street, like Broad and Allen in mm-hmm. 1993 was not like 2013 walking down Broad yeah, Street. Yeah. You know, the farm fresh, mm-hmm. all that stuff that was there. Yeah, I used was, to live over there. It was terrifying. I think For there were like transvestite hookers. Oh, uh, yeah, it was terrifying to <laughs> me. Yeah, you know? yeah. It was like, I was like, where am I, man? I, yeah. you know, uh, just so that was like, blew me away. And it took me a while to even figure that out. Uh, and then... I started meeting people through, you know, going to school and stuff, and I played a little bit of music with people and nothing ever really happened, and then Eric Larson asked me if I would play guitar in a band that he was putting together, and he was going to play drums, and it was going to be like a heavy band, which I didn't even really know what that was at the time. Uh, This is around what time? 90... Probably 94, uh, late 94. Uh, and I started, that was a band called Kalara that I was in. It was uh, me, I played guitar. This guy named Mike Rush played bass. For a while, we had two bass players Mike Rush and Sam Kravanek. And then CB Hawk played guitar. I played guitar. And Eric Larson played drums, and everybody sang. Uh, I was in that band. Vaguely remember that band. Uh, that was like the band I discovered drop detuning. Yeah. It's the first band I ever played in drop detuning. And I got kicked out of that band because I did not take it seriously at all. Uh, and I remember the dudes in the band being like, man, you can't play all the songs with one finger. And I was like, no, man, I totally can. Look, (laughs) they didn't think that, uh, at that time. I think when Eric started playing guitar in, uh, Alabama Thunderpussy, he was, employing the drop D. Oh, yeah, those dudes, yeah, that was their whole deal the whole time. Uh, I was in that band, and then I started a band with two other guys, uh, Dave Choi and Clint Bagwell, called Ebonite. Oh, yeah. You remember Ebonite? Yeah, and I lived with Dave Choi. I I guess I didn't know you then. On Cary Street? No, on Parkwood. Oh, okay. Remember that shithole back there? Yeah, yeah. well, Dave, we practiced in Dave's house on Cary. It was like Cary and Randolph. Uh, it was he and I and Clint Bagwell played bass, and I sang and played guitar. Uh, it was, that band was like a total, like, borderline spaz punk, math rock, total X-Files nerd content mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh played in like you the, the know dressed up like sound, so, yeah right. dressed up like <laughs> we literally like dressed up like scientists like not like scientists like lab coat like nasa engineer shirt and tie oh yeah like the pocket old, protector right? the, like the ray-ban kind of glasses the, yeah uh, like yeah. you know race band and haircuts what do they call it horn rim glasses yeah, yeah that yeah, kind yeah, yeah. of totally that kind of trip I like, like the almost kind of biting like a weird 
amalgam between like the Richmond sound that was having at that time, like Slang Louse and Breadwinner <clears throat> and Ladyfinger and stuff like that with Antioch Arrow and Universal Order of Armageddon and Click Attack, Ikatawi and all that, like gravity stuff that was going on in San Diego at the mm-hmm. time, like that darker sort of version of the Rocket from the Crypt mm-hmm. kind of stuff that was happening out there. It was the only band I've ever been in where I, we never... Clint and I never mentioned what notes that either of us were playing ever. <laughs> never. It was there. I never asked him. He never asked me. It was all rhythm. That's all it was. Like what? Like how many times do you do that? Was all it was. <laughs> <laughs> so we do this part three times, and we go to that part. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so Ebonite, and then what was after Ebonite? Oh, uh, the time I was in Killara, Ebonite, and Burn the Priest, all at the same time. Oh. Rock and uh, burn the priest. Yeah, yeah, all at the same time. Uh, and I was not good at balancing being in three bands at all. Uh, I did not like being in Kalara after a certain point in time. I did not like being in Burn the Priest after a certain amount of time. I liked, I mean, I was a, a dude who liked to party in my early 20s. I wanted to go play house parties and have people pour Jack Daniels down my throat while I was playing these songs and be done and go party and mess with girls and the dudes in Lamb of God were way more serious about it, specifically the drummer. Burn the priest. Burn the priest, sorry, yeah. Uh, (laughs) Were way more motivated and serious about it than I was and they could tell that so I kind of stopped doing that. Uh, And then I guess it wasn't long. Maybe I didn't do much. I probably didn't do much musically maybe for a year or so after that and then i'd met tony through dave Choi and clint the guys i was in ebonite with uh tony brown who i was like hey man let's start like a garage band because he was the only dude i knew that really liked the mummies Mm -hmm. and i was like oh man you like the mummies let's start a band like the mummies or you know let's start a like garage freak out you know what I didn't know at the time, but what people kind of call garage punk. And so that was right about the time I had a mutual friend who introduced me to this dude named Eddie Pierce, who was the singer of the M80s, who was, and probably still is, the most rock and roll person I have ever met in my life. Best harmonica player, best singer, best frontman, like a total encyclopedia of rock and roll. Like, taught me about... I mean, like, so many things, man. Like, all that Crypt stuff, all that Norton stuff. Before it was Crypt or Norton reissues, Right. Eddie had it. You know, he turned me on to that Greg Stacks magazine, Ugly Things. Mm-hmm. Like, all that stuff way long ago. And was like, man, this is, like, what we need to be doing. And we practiced in his apartment on the third floor apartment above the laundromat on the corner of Grace and Ryland. You know mm-hmm. what I'm talking yeah, yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was the M80s. We later evolved into the Pushers. Uh, we. So you were in the M- M80s. At one point. I was in the like the last incarnation or whatever, uh, an incarnation of the M80s. It was me, Eddie, Tony Brown playing bass, and this guy named Blee Dennis playing drums. Uh, Blee eventually got replaced by Mike Morunde. He, Tony, and myself. Uh, Tony, myself. Mike and Eddie started playing under the name of the Pushers. Eddie started getting into some trouble with some drugs. He was in and out and in and out. And we had a couple different singers. And then it didn't really work out. Uh, so we, I remember seeing you guys playing some weird shows, too, like at, at Humphrey Calder Playground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for like a... For like a crime awareness week some crazy you know that was yeah yeah. yeah, some crazy thing that was some girl that um mike was dating at the time was part of that west of the boulevard association or whatever and that's has played more than one show at a thing like that oh i'm sure yeah yeah Uh, and and i interviewed mike like back then for punchline and he said that they introduced you guys by saying oh yeah fighting pushing against crime If they only knew, I'm pretty sure we were doing bumps and like, <laughs> like drinking bushmills in the bathroom of the public park before we played. 
but yeah, so Eddie kind of fell on some hard times, so we kind of gave up on him, and it was Tony and Mike and I, and no singer for a long time, and we kept looking for a singer and looking for a singer, and John Parton, uh, who we all knew from being in Hose Got Cable and being in Fatty Love, uh, he wasn't playing with anybody at the time, so we were like, oh, you can start playing with us and you can sing, and he was like, yeah, I'll play guitar, but I don't really want to sing, and we couldn't really find anybody to sing, so eventually I was like, fuck it, man, if we can't find anybody to do it, I will do it. And thus... RPG yeah. was born. And that was the fall of 1999. Yeah. That's, it's, and we're in 2013 now. That is, that's the longest run for any band yep. for you. Yeah. And how many, how many records have you guys done as that band? Now is it two? Or is it... I'm sorry. No text. I'm sorry, man. I'm, I'm sexting my no, girlfriend right yeah. now. Uh, um, so what, what, what was the... Because that was a, di- a very different sound from the uh, Pushers. Oh, uh, yeah, RPG. it was. Uh, and that took a while to get gelled, I think. Yeah, right? it did. Uh, because we, you know, when you set out to have a band that you're like, okay, this is what we're going to sound like. Like when we were in the M80s, it was like, okay, well, I'm going to play a bunch of songs that have already been written by somebody else. And the songs I write need to kind of be like this. I can evolve it a little bit, but I know that Eddie wants this certain kind of thing to happen, so we're going to concentrate on making it like that. When RPG started, it was a little bit of that, and then, you know, we started listening to different stuff. That was like when the helicopters were doing their thing. Uh, That's when... Yeah, that was like that late 90s, uh, yet another sort of, not just garage kind of a thing, but then there was a psychedelic thing coming, right. another psychedelic thing, and then kind of a Sabbath. Yeah, you know, yeah. That, that there element. was a whole lot of, which wore thin on me after a while, that whole Sabbath thing. Uh, because don't get me wrong, man, Sabbath is awesome, but when you're on tour and every band you play with for a month and a half sounds like they're trying to sound like Sabbath, you get really tired of that shit. But you were at that point, all the sounds you had been working in before were, I guess, you know, guitar is in the mid-range, maybe. It's a little, like, it's yes. not, you know. Uh, yeah, that's totally, to me, that's my opinion, is that uh, guitar is a mid-range instrument. It is supposed <laughs> to reside in the mid-range of the frequencies, uh, you know. The bass is supposed to be the low end. The guitar is supposed to be the mid-range. You know, the dude singing is supposed to be the high range, probably, or the the whoever is singing. Uh, and so RPG is a thicker sound than... Oh, uh, like, sure. It's just because we're loud, yeah. uh, probably. And because there's two guitars pretty much doing the same thing most of the time, uh, which makes it a thicker sound. Yeah. But it's not low. It's yeah. just a lot. Are you in drop D in that? No. 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 This is regular my A will A. always be 440. <laughs> <laughs> it, but it's still, the influence of that kind of 70s rock was was pulling on you when you, you got Oh, sure, man. Yeah. Uh, but like I said, there was a lot of, like, you know, I love the pretty things, but I love the Stooges, which are very different. Uh, I love Free, which is markedly different from Cactus, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but I love both of them. I love Paul Revere and the Raiders, but I love the Dead Kennedys. You know, so. But I mean, up to that point, most of these bands sounded more garage than RPG, and RPG does have like a more of a '70s rock. Sound, oh, sure. Like, you know, I don't, I don't even know. Well, I mean, I guess it's intentional, but. It w- so you're not saying it was necessarily. No, we weren't like, hey, let's write a, you know, let's start writing songs that are like '70s rock songs. It was just like those were the kind of tunes we were listening to at the time. You know, a lot of early Alice Cooper stuff like that. So. I don't know if intentionally we were doing that, but that's just sort of what kind of happened. Came out like that. Uh, you know, and then I'm sure All Night probably had a huge influence on us, oh, who yeah. are an amazing, amazing band that existed for a tiny little while out of Greensboro, North Carolina, who are like, the thing that appealed to me about that band is they took every awesome riff from any kind of it, it's like a punk rock version of humble pie it's mm-hmm. like if humble pie gave no fucks about <laughs> anything and just went out there and ripped it apart and like th- harmonies like humble pie kind of stuff you know awesome awesome mm-hmm. band man awesome band and so they were a big influence on you guys or you oh like- yeah i think probably 
Uh, I think it probably worked both ways. It was more like these are like-minded people that we want to, you know. Yeah, yeah, they were definitely like, when we met those dudes, we were like, yeah, these dudes get it. You know, they're doing kind of what we want to do, and we're doing kind of what they want to do, and we could definitely feed ideas off one another, and yeah, that definitely happened a lot. You know? So what is the relationship with this being a, a job for you and a business, and like having been signed, you guys were on Arclight? Yeah, a little while, and like we were. had some various record label kind of things. Uh-huh. Uh, well, I mean, as far as the business aspect goes, we are not businessmen. We are bad at it. Uh, we are, you know, once again, that hopeless romantic uh, who's kind of bitter and has really high hopes, but may not necessarily want to expend the effort and energy it takes to do what you have to do to play the game that is be in the music industry. Uh, that probably has bit us in the ass because we've gotten lots of offers from lots of record labels and been like, eh, I mean, thanks, but that's not a very good offer. You know, a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, we've also had a lot of people tell us a lot of stuff was going to happen that never happened, which got us really disillusioned and... You know, like the we went the day we were supposed to start recording uh, Worth the Wait, we got a call from the guys at Arclight, and they were like, we're not paying for your record. And we're like, okay, well, we're making it anyway. So they paid for full time, right? Uh-huh. And what does that entail, them, a label like Arclight, paying for it? Like, we had already made it. Yeah. Uh, they gave uh, they licensed the rights to it for five years and paid for us to put out a DVD companion with it and re-released it. And you sell any? Did those sell through them at all, or did you sell mostly? Uh, you know, wouldn't you? I I don't know. I'm not the. That has never been my department. I never have been the guy who's like, how many records did we sell? You know, I'm usually the guy who's like, I need to write some songs for the next record. Uh, people tell me if they do. People, uh, you know, I never really ask. I hear about it. Obviously, they didn't sell very many because they shut us down the day we started, you know, recording the <laughs> second one. So I'm sure there are probably boxes of them somewhere in Austin, Texas, taking up space in some dude's garage that's pissing his wife. Do you even have any idea how many of them were pressed? At the, you know? I think two, maybe a thousand, maybe twelve hundred. Yeah. I don't even really know. Uh, I think at the time, I'm sure I knew, but. My brain has made room for different mm-hmm. things. It's um, been a while. So yeah, what was 2004 this? that came out, and then 2008, Worth the Weight came out, and then last year, High Loads. I talked Mark out. into putting one of those on a TKO sample. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. That's right. Uh, we, had a, we had that. We had a song on a Richmond Roulette compilation that I think I that, that. Scott Pepper mm-hmm. put out, mm-hmm. uh, that TKO comp. We had... A uh, version of Parchment Farm put out on a small stone records comp called Suckin' in the 70s. Um, I was in a band that did a shitty version of that song mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Not saying your version was sure, shitty. Yeah, yeah, but it's like one of those. It was To us, it was almost like a prerequisite. Like, you gotta, if you're gonna play a Blue Cheer song, even though it's not really a Blue Cheer song, you should play that one. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Rather than Summertime Blues, which yeah. is like the one that. Um, so then the second record, what ended up happening with that? Uh, the second record, uh, before we started doing, like right after the first record came out, well, not long after the first record came out, Tony quit. Tony was the original bass player. He quit. We got this other guy named Ryan Shade to learn the songs. Is that the face? That is indeed the face. Young kid, nice kid, man. Not ready to be an RPG. Uh, not ready to go on the road in a van with us for a month, you know. Uh, he was a little shell-shocked. Uh, he did okay. He played the shows, you know. Um, <clears throat> we came back, started writing the second record, started doing demos for the second record, realized this dude had no idea how to play any of the songs at all. Uh, and we were kind of like, what are we going to do? And So he got through all of these shows and you just didn't notice that he wasn't? No, nah, because, I mean, you know... I wasn't paying attention to him. <laughs> I was making sure my rig was loud and my mouth it was like was loud. that relationship with uh, Clint back in the <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, hey, you know, you got this. And in practice, it seemed like you had it. Uh, you know, it seemed like it worked out. Uh, we, nobody was ever like, man, the bass player sucks. So we were never like, okay, well, we got to get rid of this dude until we actually listened to what he was doing. Uh, no offense to that dude, you know, he was in over his head uh, because he was trying to write songs with dudes who had been writing songs, you know, for 10 years at that point together. 
But I mean, he's even fucking up something like early '72. Like he's not playing. Oh that no, no, right no, no! I'm talking about like when we were starting to demo songs for Worth the Wait. Okay. Which were definitely more musically advanced than the first record. Uh, we were like, man, this dude doesn't know how to play him, and we would be like, you know, you have to play that faster, and he would be like, I can't. So he didn't understand what you were going for. Like, no, no, no. It, it wasn't like he couldn't play it. He was just like not no, getting. He didn't. He doesn't get that. And there have been a lot of guys like, okay, I'll start back again. What happened is we got rid of him before we started recording the second record because the guy that was recording it was a bass player. So we were like, hey, man, do you just want to play bass on the record and be in the band for a while? And he was like, yeah. And he did a tour with us, and he, his name is Ian Whalen, and he was also not ready to be an RPG. <laughs> uh, he did a tour with us and was like, fuck this, you guys. I cannot do this shit. And we're like, yeah, of course you can, man. It's a, It's horrible if you've never done it before being in a band with a you know a small band and you're playing like tuesday night in albuquerque new mexico for no one and you got to drive 12 hours to get to denton texas the next day to play for no one Mm -hmm. you know people aren't i know it well yeah it's not for everybody just riding in the van and like (laughs) riding in a van with us with the three of Mm -hmm. us or the you know me mike and john dudes who have been doing this together for a long time and know each other and you know, you develop a little different persona when you're in the van with these dudes over that much time. and It's almost like being an outsider, you know, even that, you know, and then so Ian was gone. Uh, we did a tour. No, actually, before Ian even, no, maybe after Ian, uh, this guy named Jeff Gay did a tour with us. By the end of that tour, it was like, God, you know, we were like, man, we got to We can't even, this isn't. Like every bass player we've had, except for Tony and except for uh, Bunny Wells, the guy that plays with us now. That guy really looks like he fits in. Oh, my man, first time seeing him. He's yeah. the only dude that you don't have to be like, hey, man, when you play the bass, play that fucking thing as hard as you <laughs> fucking can, man, because that's what we need you to do. You need to strangle the shit out of the neck, and you need to have blood coming off your hands, and you need to be losing your shit, not because you need to lose your shit for people to watch it, but because you can't fucking help it, man. And that's him all the way. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, he really, really fills it out there. I hadn't seen you guys in five yeah. years, and it looks, looks, it's good with him. How did those tours go? Like, did I mean, were they, was it always like playing in Albuquerque for nobody? Oh, no, no, or? man, no. You know, you know how the weekends go. You hit yeah. like Thursday, Friday. You always when you plan them out. You know, John, God bless him, man. Pretty much booked most of our tours by himself, which is a horrible, horrible job, man. Mm-hmm. Horrible. Uh, but he, for the most part. You know, we would plan it so that you would go to the shitty places during the week and hit the good spots like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, so that you would at least be in big places on the weekends. Yeah. And the, you would hope that the those couple shows would be enough to get you through the rest of the lean time. Mm-hmm. I mean, man, we had a show. We played a show in Albuquerque one time, pulled in, broke, broke, man, no money, not enough money to feed the meter. And... You know, it's hot. It's Albuquerque. It's like, you know, April. It's fucking hot. We go to the club. They're like, yeah, we can't let you in yet because uh, somebody smashed giant holes in the drywall in the bathroom last night, and we got to redo the bathroom before you guys can come in. And we were like, hey, man, go to Lowe's and get the shit, and we'll do it. <laughs> and they were like, are you kidding? And we were, uh, I mean, we were like, no, absolutely not. Go to Lowe's, get the lumber, get a case of Budweiser and four <laughs> Little Caesars pizzas and we will do this shit for you. And they were like, okay. And they did it. And while they were getting the stuff, we demoed the bathroom. They brought it back. We rebuilt the bathroom, played the show, kicked ass, got paid, took off. Classic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's what you got to do sometimes, you know. So what happened with that record? You did the second record. What is it called? Worth the Wait. I don't think I've ever... W-E-I-G-H-T. I don't think I've ever heard... I heard songs from it, obviously, seeing you guys live. Right. So did you put it out yourselves? Uh-huh. Uh, you know, super limited release. Uh, but, you know, now who gives a fuck about a record label, really? Right. Uh, it's not really a record label you need, man. It's a publicist you need. Mm-hmm. You know, if the record label will get you a publicist, that's awesome. But if you have enough money to pay for, to, I mean, the whole publicity game is bizarro as fuck to me anyway. Like you pay somebody to tell people that you're good. Right. You know, I don't even think you need that anymore. I mean, and it's interesting you come back around to the, 
the Xerox times is like you can do that now, <laughs> yeah. but it doesn't on look, a massive scale. Yeah, yeah, and it doesn't look shitty, and it's yeah. not you know like the same level of like artistry and craft and and whatever can go into making a band look as good as any label. Yeah, at totally. This point. And and record as well. Like yeah, you can you can they don't have to be shitty recordings. No. Yeah, like fuck. I mean, like literally, man, I have this solo stuff that I do that I guess we'll probably get to later, but. I was going to do, you know, it's just acoustic songs. Uh, and I was going to, I've done some studio stuff. I recorded a couple of the tracks in the studio that came out really well. But I feel like I can convey it now. Like I literally use the memo feature on my phone. Uh, and uh, that's what I do. I play my acoustic guitar and <laughs> play it into my phone and put them on my band camp and sell them. Yeah, and, you and you're a guided by voices fan. Yeah, like so always... it's like like if that dude had that damn right, he would have been Lou Barlow would have had GarageBand on his phone, and that's what Sebado would have been. You yeah, know? and you know the the good thing about that too is like yeah, you. I mean, I, I always heard the guided by voices reason for doing that is they wanted to record it while they still liked it, basically. Yeah, while they were still excited sure. about it. They just wanted that to totally get it in the can. That totally makes sense. Man. You know, but yeah. the the other ancillary benefit of it is like you listen to B thousand, for instance, a whole lot, and you just get used to it sounding like that, yeah. and it's like tinny and thin, and shit sounds like maybe right. the, it was in the other room mm-hmm. when they were recording some of it, and that's how you know those songs. And then you go see them live and just having electric guitars and yeah. amps and a PA, it's <laughs> yeah. huge. Yeah. So you have the reverse thing happen. It used to be bands made records in studios that were just impossible to duplicate right. on stage. You go the other way, Guided by Voices mm-hmm. makes a, a record that's like, you know, impossible not to fuck up. You know? <laughs> yeah. And then they go play it live and it sounds, it has all of that, you know, it has all of that weight and space and, and depth to it that, you know, that you would fake in a studio, yep. you know, because you're used to the, the rough sketch version. Mm-hmm. And of course, they get all those songs that, that stand up for that. You, you're going to have to put that away. We're going to start talking gonna about get, it. Know, I'm going to ask you I questions. Know, I'm sorry. I'm totally texting my girlfriend because she's done with work and I need to go pick her up very soon. Well, she's, where is she, at Millie's or uh-huh. something like that? She can hang out there for a little bit, have, have a drink. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um all right, so, yeah, like, you don't really need a record label anymore. No, so you, you don't, so fuck them. I mean, literally, if I had my way, I'd, have an, I'd pay a publicist a bunch of money, but... You don't even really need that. You just need to be doing, like, what they did the DIY days of Xerox Punk, which is touring and meeting people and, like, just putting your shit out there. And you yeah. can also do that on the Internet. You could just be connecting with the right people. Somebody's got to be sitting there... Like saying we sound like you, or let's be friends, and like right. developing those relationships. But it doesn't take a publicist to do that. It just takes somebody who's not bored to death doing that, or doesn't mind, you know, yeah. doing all that handshaking. Yeah. I couldn't that. do it, man. I right. couldn't do it. I couldn't be a publicist. Uh, and it, you know, there was a long time when I romanticized all that shit too, where I was like, well, you shouldn't need a publicist. People should just understand that the shit you do is good. But people don't aren't going to take the time to worry about that. But you and don't have to put a lot of effort into putting it out there. I mean, like back no. in the day, it was like you got to fucking make something out of plastic. And it costs a whole lot of money to get this thing made. Sure. First of all, to get the fucking music recorded and then to get it put on the plastic thing. Sure. And then to have the plastic <laughs> things made with the <laughs> yeah. artwork and some more plastic to go around it. Yep. And then that has to be driven around the country mm-hmm. or flown around the country. Then it's got to be put inside people's stores and all that shit. You don't need any of that anymore. No. And, and I'm not saying I don't want any of it because I like to go to a record store and buy A tangible vinyl, thing is cool, yeah. You know? But I mean, all, the, all of the lefty kids ought to be really happy about this because it takes sure. petroleum to make CDs. And, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, this is great recycling. Yeah. It's just a digital yeah, thing. Ones and you know, zeros. Ones and, zeros. and it can go anywhere and it doesn't cost anybody any money to send it around, really. I mean, maybe a little, but it's just out there. It's mm-hmm. it, it, You can make unlimited copies of it off of one server and it's sure so you don't really have to do anything. So is that what you're basically at? Like not really doing anything with that band right now that didn't play that? Odd show or what's going yeah, on? Yeah, pro- I mean, we'll probably write we'll uh, write another record. Like that's what we like to do is write songs. So we'll probably always write songs, playing shows. We're not necessarily too crazy about. Uh, we like to keep them, you know, kind of as a special event, you know, mm-hmm. so that when we have them, lots of people come to them and it's a real good time. But we'll always write songs, I'd imagine, because it's fun and we all know how the other guys do it. You know, it's real comfortable. Uh, and I mean, not to toot my own horn or anything, but we write some, to me and to the rest of us, some pretty fucking good, fun songs to play. And that's 
kind it's of always a good form. time when you guys play. Yeah. Like I don't think that ever gets diminished. Even sure. you know, there's because the people that you guys are friends with too are always you know they bring yeah. a lot to the yeah absolutely. Shows. It's a, the ideal situation for a, a rock band, I think. Does High Loathsome exist beyond vinyl? Is there? Uh, yeah, it's it, on our Bandcamp. RPGRVA.com. Yeah. Oh no, RPGRVA.bandcamp.com. And my uh, solo one is Matt Connor, M-A-T-T-C-O-N-N-E-R dot bandcamp dot com. So, yeah, so talk about the solo stuff a little bit, and then you can go pick up. <laughs> well, I used to be in this country band a long time ago called Corn Tooth. Corn Tooth, yeah. uh, With Ed Trask, who was the drummer for Keypone and Avail and a bunch mm-hmm. of other... Holy Rollers? Holy Rollers, yep. Uh, I think he was in Guar for a while. Uh, Tim Harris, who was in Burma Jam, who was in Keypone, who was in Guar for a while. He played bass. And then Mark Morton, who was in Burn the Priest with me and is in Lamb of God, uh, played guitar. And Phil Murphy played steel guitar. Phil is an incredible musician and an incredible dude. Uh, we were very lucky to... Phil was like, you know, it was my... Uh, I sang and my ex-wife uh, sang. What was her name? Her name is Janie. Janie, yeah. Uh, and it was like, we were definitely going for that. George and Tammy, uh, Loretta, Conway, kind of. Johnny June. Yeah, uh, Patsy Klein, Hank Williams sort of thing. And then it's st- uh, sort of started to evolve a little bit. And then like with so many bands I'm in, I think they probably got tired of dealing with me. And then we just kind of stopped doing it. And... And everybody was in other bands. Sure, yeah, it was logistically yeah. kind of difficult. Uh, it was a very well-received band uh, for a long time. Uh, and then it just, you know, I never stopped liking playing acoustic guitar songs and stuff like that. So, and, you know, going through a divorce will kind of make you write some sad songs sometimes, and you don't really want to necessarily have those songs be songs that your rock band plays, and you sit around while you're living at the practice space until you can find an apartment uh, <laughs> with your guitar and you write some pretty sad songs about getting, not necessarily about getting divorced, but just songs that show themselves because of your emotional state. Uh, not necessarily that the subject matter is... They take on a certain cast. Sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that's kind of what that was, but... I've sort of since lightened up and happied myself up a little bit, I suppose. Uh, and it's a different, it's a little bit different. It'll probably always be different, but I really like doing it. I really like the freedom and the independence of somebody being like, hey, do you want to come do this? And I can be like, yeah. And the only thing I have to do is put this guitar in the case and put my case in the car and go. Uh, I don't have to, not to say that I don't like doing that other stuff, you know, doing rock shows with the guys I'm in RPG with, because that shit is awesome, and those dudes are my friends, and I'm lucky to get to do it with my friends, the way that we do it. But there's also something to be said uh, about just doing it on your own. It's terrifying, it's exhilarating, it's a total adrenaline rush, it's like bombing sucks, play an acoustic guitar in a bar full of people that could give a fuck and are talking the entire time is humiliating and humbling and (laughs) can be terrifying. Uh, Playing songs, I don't know which is worse, playing songs to that or playing songs to a bar full of people that are quiet, that don't do anything when you're done playing songs. But they're watching you the whole time. Uh, Or maybe they're watching you or maybe you think they're watching you. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it's humbling. There's lots and it's of different, different kinds of indifference. Yeah, there are. Yeah, that's it. That's it. You you get the uh, full spectrum of indifference. Uh, and you know, trying to sell somebody on like you walk into a bar and what would you do if you walked into a bar and there you'd be like, oh great, another fucking clown with mm-hmm. an acoustic guitar singing some sad shit to me. Mm-hmm. Big fucking deal which it's a challenge and i accept it and it's exhilarating and it's a, an entirely new kind of event for me like i can't imagine being a stand-up comedian man i can't fucking imagine having a bad night as a stand-up i can't believe every dude that ever had a bad night as a stand-up comedian didn't immediately kill themselves <laughs> you know because there are times when i get done doing this shit and i'm like man that was humiliating as hell but you know I'm lucky to have people in my life that are like, hey, man, don't, you got to just go do it. Like, you got to keep these the shows where there's, they're just like, they booked people to play someplace and people aren't there because the band. Oh, uh, it depends. Some of them are, are like, I'm going to go see this dude play. And some of them are like, hey, I went to this bar where I always go because I like looking at the chicks that go there. And this dude happened to be there playing the guitar and singing. Yeah. And th- that's, 
the reason that acoustic people up on stage doing acoustic music a lot of times is a tough sell or whatever is because it is so intimate, you know. And sure. you're like, I, I don't know if I want to read this guy's diary. Yeah, right? absolutely. You know? and because I'm trying to bang this chick. Yeah, I'm trying to, I want to forget about that shit <laughs> yeah, right true. now. But I guess if it's voluntary, like you are promoting things that are like you're doing a show and you're doing shows with other people. They know right. People know what they're getting into. That's got to sure. be a different mm-hmm. kind it of thing. I think the more I do it, you know, I've only been doing it for like a, maybe a year, really, seriously, uh, going out and playing shows. I'm going to New York at the end of this month. I got a bunch of shows uh, coming up. Uh, I don't know. I, I really like it. I really like how it is and I feel like the more I do it the more people will understand what they're getting when I'm playing and who they're booking and what I do and where it will fit and you know it's like starting from scratch too mm-hmm. it's like I don't really get to rely not that I have a whole lot of clout anyway from being an RPG but probably more than some other people do but it doesn't matter they're doing this shit that shit doesn't matter you know it kind of does or I can get my foot into doors places where I might not have been able to previously uh, but I mean, I'm just kind of doing it almost on like the merit. Uh, I'd like to say on the merits of the music solely, but let's not kid ourselves. Not. <laughs> if you did that, you'd just stay at home and do it. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. And so, but this is an amateur, I mean, it's love of the game thing. For oh, you. yeah. There's man. no money in it. No. Nah, yeah. well, I yeah. mean, there's money in the fact that when I go out of town, I probably make gas money, you know. But, you know, a lot of it. Well, I would honestly, if I could, play, you know, four nights a week, you know, just because I like it, Mm -hmm. Uh, and it beats having a day job. Yeah. You know, if I could do it and pay my bills by doing it in the way I would choose to do it and not have to succumb to playing a bunch of radio covers and be a human jukebox for three hours a night Mm -hmm. at fucking tobacco company or Chenet or whatever the shit. And no diss to people that do that. If you can do that and make a living at it, whatever, that's just not my trip. Yeah. You know? Yeah, well, there's a fine line with that. I was just talking about that yesterday. I mean, it's it's one thing, I guess, to recognize that you are making money off of the fact that these other people's songs are recognizable and they're there <laughs> right. to say that. And, you you know, that's fine. But don't. But but if you begin to treat it like this is your band, like you wrote these songs, is like your image, that can get a little, take that a little too far. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen that happen a few times. That That deserves dissing. Sure, sure. But I mean, who am I to say? Like, that's the thing. Like, again, that's a thing that, that. as a young, the young man that was Matt Connor would have been furious about that (laughs) shit and, like, totally held those people in the lowest possible regard because they choose to do that. And, you know, who the fuck am I to say? If you want to play some music and make some money and have some drunk girl shake her ass for you because you're playing, or, like, get all weepy because you're playing wonderful tonight, who gives a fuck? Yeah, yeah. Go do it, dude. Dude, I guess that's true, and that I mean that's the nice thing about Richmond, you know, is that you got you got a certain amount of the luxury of like it's not that hard to live here, it's not that expensive to live here. You can kind of just do your thing, and you can kind of find a niche and just yeah. enjoy. Sure, I love it, man. I'll never leave this town. Hell no. Well, so that with that, we will uh, let you go pick Amy up. Thank you for your <laughs> Thanks, time. Thanks, man. Thank All you right. too. She'll be stoked. All right.